Machine learning is allowing engineers, technologists, marketers, and designers to solve problems that humans used to do. With these shifts, the design thinking process should be evolving as well to improve our AI processes. How can we ensure that AI is still creating good design without us? And what does this mean for future designers? From VSA Partners, this is AI Plus Design, a podcast about the merging relationship of artificial intelligence and design. I'm Scott Tyson, Interaction Design Lead at VSA Partners. I'm here today with Paul Sohi from Autodesk. Paul is a design researcher whose work explores how established processes are being transformed by machine learning technology. He's a firm believer in the design thinking process, and he has some interesting ideas on how machine learning can evolve this methodology. So we're here today in Boston at this amazing place, and Paul just took us around some of the facilities. And there's a whole residency program. There's 3D printers that are as big as my living room and robots, and, and it, it's, it's an incredible inspiration. There's, there's a group of people who are working with Paul on various projects of their own. And uh, I'd be curious, Paul, to hear a little of your take on, on what's going on. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, very happy to be here. And welcome to the Build Space. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So uh, the Build Space is one of Autodesk's technology centers. It's where uh, Autodesk staff can experiment, reflect the industry's test and prototype at one-to-one scale. Um, so we have loads of really, really cool, shiny equipment downstairs. There's tons of industrial robots, as you mentioned. We have um, composites, a metal shop, precision machining, 3D printing, laser cutting, experimental technologies, hybrid manufacturing. Pretty much if you need it to test with it, it's here. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the space isn't just for Autodesk staff to experiment in, but we also run residency programs out of our tech centers. So our residency here at the Build Space focuses on the architecture, engineering, and construction industries, but also factors in manufacturing industries as well. Residents can come in for as long as they need for the duration of their project to help them deliver from concept all the way through to a production model. What is generative design and how has Autodesk been using it and how long have you been part of this type of program? Well, let's start with how long I've been a part of this program. So I've been with Autodesk for about three years, um, be three years in May, actually. And I've been working with generative design for about a year and a half on and off. Um, I had my first introduction to it uh, working on a prosthetic leg project with German Paralympic cyclist Denise Schindler. Uh, We went on to produce the first ever 3D printed prosthetic leg and we used a little bit of generative and um, when it was still very much like a kind of fledgling baby here at Autodesk to experiment with ways that we could make this product much, much lighter and give her a competitive edge. Um, But I think I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So um, generative design itself mimics nature's evolutionary approach to design. Uh, Designers or engineers input design goals into generative design software, including parameters such as materials, size, weight, strength, manufacturing methodology, and cost constraints. Then using the power of cloud computing and AI-based algorithms, the software explores all the possible permutations of a solution, quickly generating hundreds or even thousands of design options. So I think it's really important right from the outset that we let the listeners know out there that generative is not a magical tool. It's not a, hey Siri, make me a motorcycle kind of solution. That's Mm -hmm. not what Mm -hmm. it does. And also, the solutions provided to you by Generative are not the only solution. There's still 
tons of variables and you can put the same thing in a number of different times and get a number of solutions out exactly the same way that we designed today. There's no one solution to any product. How do you even go about sorting hundreds or thousands of design solutions that it might kick out? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I would say that's why data management is such a big part of generative design. So, you know, generative as it exists today has taken quite a while to come out and a lot of development has gone on, not just because of the complexities in the geometry, but then also how it is that you manage the data being presented to you. So from the simplest levels of just having a grid with all your solutions on there, the ones that work the best, the ones that don't work as well, and all the way down to the ones that fail, but then also being able to chart that data out in a way that makes sense. So a solution that's presented to you because mechanical elements are so important in generative design can now start to be charted out against different criteria. So whether it's um, stiffness versus volume or strength versus weight or mass versus displacement, you can start to look at the possible solutions in a number of different ways to start picking the ones that make the most sense for you. Mm -hmm. Then you can add a layer of complexity to that. So how much is it going to cost if you use titanium versus steel? And so you can start to slowly refine uh, down until you get the one that probably fits the best. Hmm. And even then, you may not be using that as your final fit. You may take that data back to your CAD program and continue to work on it and post-process it until you have something that is going to be in the final product. Hmm. So, and all of this is is key to a lot of the clients that Autodesk has been working with and supplies software for. Yes. So, so Paul, tell me some of the ways Autodesk is using generative design that people might find surprising or disruptive. Well, so generative is typically thought of um, as a topology optimization tool, which is factually incorrect. If anything, generative works um, in reverse. You start with an abstraction or a, a space full of just negative volumes mm-hmm. and you tell it what you want. Um, When you keep that in mind, your applications suddenly become really, really vast. One of my favorite examples is the Airbus partition. So Autodesk is working in partnership with Airbus to help develop the, I believe it's the A380. It's going to be the world's largest passenger aircraft. So saving weight at every possible um, point in that aircraft is critical. And one of the examples that we've demonstrated is the partition wall. So between where the main cabin is and, you know, those little walls where you see the fold-down seats, the air steward. The first class. Exactly, yeah, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, that area that no one really is allowed (laughs) to go into. Um, (laughs) So that, for example, is actually a really critical element in an aircraft. So those partition walls help generate stiffness in the um, cabin itself and, and the chassis of the plane. And obviously, they perform a function and they separate different areas up. Um, your assumption would probably be that, oh, these things don't weigh that much. They're not that big of a deal. They're actually traditionally very heavy objects. So being able to save a ton of weight and factor in all the different load cases that a a piece of um, geometry like that is going to have to deal with is really, really fascinating. So you end up with this crazy kind of skeletal looking form so that it can maintain the stiffness of the previous object, but also save, I think it's something like 50% of the weight which is, again, just really cool. Right. So a really interesting design problem that no one really thinks of. Like you said, it, it, it's a partition to keep out 
<laughs> certain elements from other elements, but it actually is structurally important to the plane. So fascinating. Yeah. And then, you know, keeping with vehicles, um, there's a great company called uh, Hackrod, and they're working on a generatively designed chassis for a car. Um, so the way that they've been doing that is they've built a prototype chassis uh, using a traditional method, and they race that around a bunch of different tracks all over the world. They can get information on how the existing chassis they have shifts and displaces based on how uh, the Gs are being applied to it as it corners, and then feed that information into a generative algorithm to produce the strongest and stiffest possible car chassis. And then in my own work, I've been using generative, you know, almost the wrong way and using it to explore um, aesthetic options for home products. So I've been designing um, chairs and, and tables because for whatever reason, that's my go-to when I get a new piece of software is to try and make a chair or a table with it. Um, and playing around with generative to see what kind of really organic biomimicry style shapes I can get that might be appealing. So setting up load cases not to perform function, but actually to get um, aesthetic explorations out of it instead, which has been fun. You had mentioned at one point um, when we first talked about things like a skateboard truck and a bicycle crank as well. Yeah. Um, so the bicycle crank has been an interesting case study for a number of different reasons. Um, bike cranks are one of those things that if you looked at a bicycle, you'd probably think that is one of the last things that probably needs redesigning, which I would argue is true. Um, so choosing it as something to explore to make lighter and stiffer mm -hmm. doesn't make a ton of sense from that point of view because it's not the, you know, I hate this term, but the lowest hanging fruit. But that's exactly why I chose it because I wanted to pick something that would be really difficult to optimize and make even lighter. Um, and I'm getting close. <laughs> We're not quite there yet. It would still say that the traditionally designed bike crank is still better than the one I can produce using AGD right now. Mm -hmm. um, but that's kind of the point for me is to see how far I can push something that we take for granted and assume we've perfected or optimized as far as we can take. With the skate truck at the other end of the spectrum, I think a skate truck is a really interesting example to show um, applications of a number of different technologies. So not, not just generative design, but then also additive manufacturing. So additive manufacturing is typically thought of as a prototyping tool, which of course it is, but it's not only a prototyping tool anymore. We're starting to see it peak its way into being a production uh, manufacturing tool as well. So combining that with generative design and an application like a skate truck is a really interesting challenge. Like uh, additive, additively manufactured metals typically are not nearly as strong as their traditionally manufactured counterparts. Um, a skateboard truck is an object that is ultimately sacrificial and is designed to be beaten the hell out of mm -hmm. until it can't take any more. Um, and then applying AGD to that means you're inviting, you know, areas of weakness, factors of uh, stiffness that might get compromised. So that's why I think it's a really interesting challenge to use AGD for that, because we're going to make something that's going to get beaten to, to hell mm -hmm. and back, um, but can give a performative improvement to a skater. So by making it considerably lighter, you can flip the board faster. It's going to be it's going to take less effort on your part to ride around, figure out what your line is going to be and what kind of tricks you want to do. And then 
Also, you know, skateboard trucks get grinded. I'm not sure if that's the right term for it. I mean, it's called a grind, so uh-huh. let's go with grinded. Okay. Um, <laughs> ground doesn't sound right. <laughs> so if you if you you know if you're going to do a grind with a skateboard, the trucks are going to get ground down. Hence the name. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm really interested to see what will happen when you generatively design a skate truck that way, and then. 3D print it out of metal like is it going to shatter instantly or is it going to stand up to the challenge are you going to be the one testing that absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) you know it's interesting that you mentioned the aesthetics of those parts and and I think and I wonder because it has no sense of human aesthetics right we're the ones who decide that will that ever become a part of someone's aesthetic? Like there's so many mechanical parts, like you mentioned a crank that are probably almost identical manufacturer to manufacturer. Right. I think about a client VSA had, which was Harley Davidson at one point had 17 different kickstands. And for cost reasons, they decided to make one kickstand for all the bikes. But at one point, different kickstands were going with different kinds of bikes. But it, it makes me wonder, would someone ever in the future adopt a generatively aesthetically pleasing, whatever that means, as part of their brand or as part of their design that was a signature element different than the rest of the competition? Hmm. It's an interesting question. It, it, I think it all really falls back down to how you treat um, generative design in the more traditional tr- design schools of thought so mm-hmm. you know when when we think about design people might start to shoehorn things into different categorizations as it stands i would say that generative design is not an aesthetic onto its own but is actually biomimicry in its purest form so when people talk about biomimicry today i'm always a little skeptical and Maybe a little cynical about it, mm-hmm. actually, because it, it it can be biomimicry can be really open to interpretation and what it means and how people apply it. Is it biomimicry because you're copying cellular structures, or mm-hmm. is it because you've found some reflection in your infrastructure and how some circulatory system works? And a lot of that, I would just you know, poo-poo. It's just copying. It's just aping what, right. what has already occurred. Yeah, mm-hmm. which makes sense with the term biomimicry, but. It's it's one of those genres that's so open to interpretation, it's hard to pin down what it actually is. Generative design, on the other hand, because it is mathematically driven, it is geometry in its purest form, and it is trying to perform a function, that to me is the closest interpretation to nature we have today. And that is why I would say it's the best form of biomimicry in that sense. And it, I think it shows in the stuff it produces as well. Like it's very clearly, you know, straight out of the books of H.R. Geiger, really. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I think of a better way of putting it. <laughs> Not as nightmarish, just to be clear. <laughs> so if we think about some of those classic elements of design that we learn in various design schools, symmetry, balance, contrast, all of that, how does that really apply or does it with generative design? You said it's mathematically based, it's problem based. Mm. So it is for, um, for designers of a certain age, shall we say, um, generative design is going to be very different. The way that generative works is, is 
using abstractions. So you're not designing with a very kind of rigid sense of what it is that you're working towards. Mm-hmm. The traditional process of, you know, sketch, concept, development, ideation, prototype, done. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really apply in the same respects to generative. So trying to control um, aesthetics with generative doesn't make a ton of sense, but rather using that to inform um, your process does. I think it's also um, a common common mistake with almost every new technology. And this is not this is not something unique to generative design, but anytime a new manufacturing technology comes out or a new piece of CAD, whatever it may be, people tend to make the assumption that it's the be all and end all. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, AGD exists now, so I put this in, it gives me an output and I'm done. We just manufacture that. Yeah. No, that's not the case. Like it's never been the case, right? So AGD is still a part of the process just like anything else. So um, today you would produce a part, you would get it out, you would then take that back to whatever CAD system you're using, um, clean it up, prep it, you know, you might need to put threads in it, that kind of thing. And so that process gives you that opportunity to um, push aesthetics in it if you want, whether it's symmetry or whatever else. Um, obviously, you then have to run your simulations again and make sure that it's doing its job. So it could spit out a form, you could tweak it and then check it again. Absolutely. To see how yeah. that works, if that significantly uh, impaired its function or its some, yeah. of the, some of the goals you'd set for it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that, Ger- you know, based on the way generative works today of applying load cases to an abstraction of an, of, of an object, um, you, you have an approximate idea of what that thing is going to look like. But because the mechanics make a huge part up of what generative is, mm-hmm. um, aesthetics get pushed to the wayside to ensure that performance um, drives everything. And that makes a ton of sense for generative, and that's kind of what you want. But being able to influence aesthetic is is sort of the next stage. Like AI doesn't really factor that in. It's not AI is not really capable of subjective opinions, right? It's not going to tell you that this looks better than that one. And if it did, that'd be terrifying. <laughs> um, so maybe one day, but right now, no. It's it's um, it's giving you that kind of mechanical solution. Then it's up to you afterwards to make that attractive yeah. and appealing. It's interesting because there's a study about babies who stare at faces, photos of faces that are more symmetrical or less symmetrical, and they stare at the ones that are more symmetrical instinctively as babies. Hmm. Will AI ever understand that that's a thing that humans like or like naturally and instinctively? I mean, who knows why we even do it, but it's it's a fascinating thing. I don't know if I want to live in that world where it it knows what pretty is. <laughs> it may i don't i don't know if it will i mean there there are certain you know um instinctual things that we we find appealing mm-hmm. i wasn't i wasn't aware of that study but i think that kind of is the root behind what we consider attractive right, right. um but beyond that you know tastes evolve with time mm-hmm. um and I don't think that AI is capable of predicting that because tastes are a slow evolution, right? AI is very, very, very fast. Hmm. Um, I think it can only ever be reactionary. Um, I believe Amazon is setting up a shoe company and 
the idea behind that is I think their un- their argument or their understanding or their their desire rather to do that is Amazon has all this data on what shoes sell and what don't sell mm-hmm. and they believe that they can feed that into an AI to design desirable shoes so that they know everything they make will get sold but that that's like an error carried forward idea of oh well these things were popular that means this will be popular but that's not the way it works like right. if you look at any it's sticking with the, the the shoes if you look at any sneaker company you can see a very clear evolution in their design from the very first sneaker to whatever is available today there's clearly an ethos that's gone into that mm-hmm. ai is not really capable of understanding that today it's not it's not able to understand intent um Trying to give AI intuition is a very difficult thing. Yeah, I bet. Um, you mentioned before that there's a certain generation of design designers, and some of those people are worried about how it will change our work and the design and the and the roles we play on a daily basis. Mm. Um, what are some misconceptions about that? Then you've kind of touched on them a little bit, but. Again, I think um, it's one of those things where we just never learn the lessons of history. Yeah. Anytime something like this comes along, someone always assumes or, or decries that this is the end of the human race mm-hmm. and that we're all going to be slaves to the machine. And as far as I can tell, it hasn't really happened yet. I might be a slave to my iPhone, but <laughs> beyond that, um, no, um, we're not anywhere close to that uh, vision of the world yet. And tools like... AGD, like the clues in the name, it's a tool. Yeah. It's computer-aided design. It's not computer-designed, right? Generative and any other new AI-assisted tool is ultimately there to augment your ability as a designer, not replace it. Ultimately, that boils down to, you know, what design is. Even AGD left to its own devices is incapable of doing anything. Mm -hmm. It's still solving for problems that you present to it. So it's up to you to help it get the best solutions possible. If you give it bad data, it's going to give you bad stuff back. It mm-hmm. can't fix for that. AI is not that intelligent yet. Maybe one day we'll have... Do you remember Clippy from Microsoft sure. Word? Yeah. Maybe one day we'll have one of those in CAD where it's like, hey, it looks like you're trying to design a, a house. <laughs> Need some help with that? Um, <laughs> we're not quite there yet. Right. Do you think that that misconception is in certain aspects of the design realm, like maybe less of the industrial design group because they're so more they're they're much more mathematically focused i think yeah i think we're seeing um we're seeing more fear from computational based careers than we are from creative based careers but um in both cases there's nothing nothing there to to replace them outright yeah and i don't think people would want that like and for the same reason that today putting handmade on something makes it more appealing I think that's only going to become more and more true as time goes on, you know, designed exclusively, you know, 100% AI free or whatever it may be. But, um, but that is, that is us just kind of succumbing to unfounded anxieties and fears. Like those tools that again, can't stress this enough. Those tools are to augment, not to replace. And that's what they've always been. Yeah. I would say. (laughs) All right. Last question for you. What gets you most excited about coming to work then? New stuff. <laughs> um, I get most excited when I get to take on a challenge that is um, unprecedented. I mean, obviously, that's 
pretty few and far between. That's mm-hmm. not every day of the job, but being able to make stuff, that's what gets me out of bed. Yeah. Being able to get dirty and covered in sawdust. Um, Rethinking the ordinary like you are with you know skateboards and, and, and bike crankshafts. That's a much better way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I like... Um, I design because I'm angry, I think is um, the reason I, I took this career. Um, I design because I look at stuff and go, that's terrible. We could do a much better job at that. Yeah. Um, and that drives why I get up. Yeah. So rethinking the ordinary. Yeah, that's a much better way of putting it. Let's pretend I said that. Um, yeah, I like, um, I like challenging the status quo. Cool. and shaking trees and ruffling feathers. Well, the <laughs> stuff we've seen here at Autodesk and the, the conversation with you, Paul, has been fascinating, and we thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. <laughs>